I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell Sanders. And you're listening to Pop It. <laughs> this is the podcast we're popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. We're silly. We're giggling. Yes. Well, I'm excited to talk about another Worcester woman who I found on the famous Worcester Wikipedia page. This one is also <laughs> really wild and random. So today we are talking about Judge Madeline, like the little French like girl. Like the little French girl. Singus. And she was born in Worcester in 1966 cool. to a family of Greek immigrants. Awesome. They had come from Greece in the 50s, but they were all born in the 20s in this town called Ionanina. Ion, I know I'm going to butcher I it. I feel like it's either Ionina, like you said, or Ioannina. Yanina. That sounds yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's I-O-A, the beginning of it's it. It's right here. The northwest area of Greece. Yeah, like just south well, of Albania. Like yeah. it's not the Greek. It's more west was, of, than anything. It's not really that far north. When I was picturing it, I was like, oh, maybe I'll look up pictures, and it'll be like, what's the Meryl Streep movie? Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia. I was. Thinking it was not. Um, it wasn't like that. The Sisterhood of the Traveling yes. Pants, like Santorini. Um, it looked much different than that when I looked at the pictures. Honestly, it looked a lot more like Worcester. <laughs> I think we exoticize places like that. They're like, well, it's Greece. Yeah. It has to be, right? Where it's like, some places aren't are regular. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Madeline Sings' aunt is the one that I have probably the most information about. She comes to Worcester and she gets a job at Table Talk Buys. That's very cool. Table Talk, definitely a staple of Worcester. I think probably has employed a lot of immigrants who have that come was, to the city. What I was about to say is like a job... Huh. Yeah. yeah. Like, absolutely. After she establishes herself, she and her husband open up the original house of pizza. And this Pleasant is her, Street. her aunt. Yeah. Yes. yes. I'm just kind of trying to establish her Worcester connection because yeah. we're going to talk about some like really fascinating cases that she was involved in as a judge and a district attorney in the state of New York. But she is, she comes from Worcester roots. Right, her roots are here, absolutely. And her family's here. She, like, her immediate, immediate family moved away, but her, the rest of her extended family is in the area still. That's right. So she's cool. born here. She ends up living in New York City. But, oh, just one note. I've been really trying to figure out which pizza place this is. Yes, how did you determine there are two pizza shops on Pleasant Street. Yes. One is Atlas Pizza. That's, like, on Airport Hill. Mm-hmm. The other one is in Newton Square. And Which is the house the house of pizza. I think that was the house of pizza because it closed in 2002, according to Katarina's, her obituary. Sure. And so yeah. I was, like, thinking I went to high school in 2002 in mm-hmm. Newton Square, and that year, Gary Rosen's Hot Dogs opened up. <laughs> City Councilor Gary Rosen. I know it turned over that year because I just remember being like, who's Gary Rosen? I can't believe that Gary Rosen opened up a hot dog store called Gary Rosen's Hot Dogs in the the location of like a family-owned Greek-style pizza joint. I think it was like a (laughs) campaign investment because everyone would be like, oh, are you going to Gary Rosen's after school? It's smart. We all knew his name, but we had no idea who he was. Everyone loves hot dogs, though. Uh, one more note about her Worcester aunt. She was like beloved by the Celtics players and fans. They Do you know how this happened? Ma. Did she go? To, was she, she a regular? She would just go games? to a lot of games. Yeah. I love that. And everyone called her Ma. Like she was everyone's mom. But at any rate, Madeline, Judge Singus. Judge Singus. Her family moves to Queens when she's cool. little. And they also open up a pizzeria, a Greek pizzeria. I don't 
Yeah. What do you think defines Greek pizza? Uh, to me, at least like in my experience of like eating it, I always find that the crust is airier. Yeah. And almost like, like if you're eating the crust part, if you're eating just a bite of like the regular triangle, it almost feels like it's pretty thin, but not like crispy. But then when you get to the crust part, I always find that it's very, the the crumb structure. (laughs) Yeah. It's airy though. And it's cooked in like a really well oiled steel pan. It's a very distinct style that's popular in Worcester. I think like in maybe Massachusetts, like I think we have a lot of Greek style. I have no clue if it's popular in Queens, but her parents go, they open up this pizzeria there and her dad becomes a pillar of the community, the Greek community. And he brings home everyone's mail for her every evening. And he says like, these people, they can't read their mail. Like we need you to help. To to his daughter? His daughter from a pretty young age is the one who's like reading all of the mail and translating it. She's having like a real immigrant experience. Yes. And she not to be like the <laughs> arbiter of what makes a real immigrant experience, you know what I mean? But like, she had a family who had community with people who couldn't read in English. And spoiler alert: now she's on the highest court in the state of New York. So to look back, she's lived a lot of lives. So she graduates from Bronx Science, which is like the best. I was going to say yeah. you would know better than I would because you were kind of in the area in the education field. But even I know, as just like a, someone who's spent my whole life living in Massachusetts, that Bronx Science is like it's really interesting. Elite level high schools. Right? You like, apply for high school yep. the same way you kind of would to apply to college when you're in middle school. And so while most of the middle schools are regionalized, so like if you live in a certain neighborhood, you go to that middle school. For high school, when I did my student teaching, I did it at um, the business high school. And so in law, it was law and business. So those students ostensibly were really interested in becoming lawyers someday. Because um, I think a lot of people don't realize this. This is an aside, but like, yeah, the New York City high school system is like, it's totally its own thing. Yeah. And a lot of them are specialized. So like Bronx Science, but there's like the fame school. Oh, right? yeah, so the like, art LaGuardia, Right, LaGuardia is like an art school. So she went, she got into Bronx, Bronx Science, Science. Yeah. Which is impressive. I mean, and then she goes to Columbia and then she goes to Fordham Law. I'm a little biased, but I think that's <laughs> cool. an excellent school. Yeah. And so she graduates in 1991. She goes to work in the DA's office in Nassau County. So that's that little red dot here. Yep. So it's basically, if you have any familiarity with looking at a map of New York, there's like the state like what we consider New York State and then there's the Long Island essentially sticking off the end like a like a hook. Yeah. Um, not like our hook, though. Like, not like the Cape Hook. But, like, it's... She's... NASA is just on the crux of, like, where Long Island meets the state of New York. So, I'm going to pull up a picture of her, mm-hmm. and I'd love to ask you this question. Who do you think would play her in a movie? That is a great question. I... Because oh. she has a very distinct... She has very... She has dark eyes and dark hair and kind of, like, tan skin. And it's so... It's It's hard. Because I know she's Greek, but I was like, right, oh, exactly. So that was what I was going to say. She almost has the look of like someone like a Vin Diesel, where it is she. She, if you don't know what her background is, it would be ambiguous to you. Yeah, I think, right. So like in my head, I almost want to like cast like a Latina woman. Yeah, because she, like I said, she has like she's dark hair and dark eyes. I know, but in my head, I'm like, well, I know she's Greek. <laughs> um, 
So I don't know. But to give our listeners a visual picture of Judge Singus. She's very well put together. She looks like an attorney. She has the attorney haircut that I always think of, right? <laughs> I almost can see, like, her face. If I put, like, a very dark-haired wig on Charlize Theron. Oh, I would, can see that. Right? It's almost just, like, like fa- her face I can see. She's wearing pearls. She's wearing pearls. Her hair is, like, very nicely done but it, and it's like a hair she has like a haircut like it doesn't yeah. look like she just rolls out of bed like angles and layers yep. and a blow dryer yep. and a blazer yep yeah but i feel like yeah i feel like polished very polished that's a good way to put it okay. i could almost see like eva longoria oh which yes. again not a greek person but, but like yeah no, that, that's kind of that. like where i kind of would jump to so <laughs> i said she got a job at the da's office I am not a law and order aficionado like yourself. <laughs> what does a DA do? The DA, so a district attorney is basically the person who, depending on where you live, depending on the county um, or city that you live in, is it could be sometimes elected, sometimes appointed, but basically they are the person who, like, for that area, whatever their designated area is, so Worcester County, right? We have a DA. Their job is to prosecute all the cases for that area. That doesn't mean that that person specifically... So, for example, like, Joe Early is our Mm -hmm. district attorney. That doesn't mean that he personally is, like, in the courtroom for every single case that is prosecuted. But the district attorney's office decides what cases to prosecute, depending on what evidence is presented by them. So they work sort of, like, laterally to detectives, Sometimes kind of with them, sometimes some not always, depending on who the person is and where they are. Because like I said, they can be elected and sometimes they have certain stances that they take. But yeah, their basic idea is like they choose what cases get prosecuted and then they hire other attorneys to be like assistant district attorneys to then carry those things out. So just to give you a sense too, she's not the DA when she first she gets, gets to this office. But she's like working in the office, so she's getting an understanding of the yeah. systems that so are she's a play, part of right? this team. She yeah. graduates Fordham Law in 91. She has twin girls within the next decade. And then by 2006, she started this career in Nassau County. I looked it up and I was like, 1.3 million people. How many Worcesters? I was about to say, I'm <laughs> guessing that it's a pretty highly concentrated area. Because like we said, it is, it's a fraction of Long Island. Yes. Um, and Long Island itself is pretty highly populated. It's that a, is a lot of people. It's about six and a half Worcesters. Good to know. That's like my new uh, yeah. measurement. My new six and a half times what Joe Early is. My new unit of measure. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. How many Worcesters is that? One of her biggest accomplishments during that time is in the DA's office, she establishes their first special victims unit. What does a special victims bureau do? Um, so, yeah, sometimes they're called the special victims bureau. Sometimes it's called the special victims unit. If you have any familiarity with, like, popular culture and television over the last 20 or, oh, God, more than that, the show's been on 25 years maybe, but like Law & Order SVU, right? Special Victims Unit. Um, it essentially is just the area of police department that focuses on generally what we think of like cases that deal with sexual sexual crimes, right? So like sexual assault, rape, harassment, that type of stuff. But it can also deal with like the elderly or yeah. children. So, like, anything that's outside of the realm of, like, an av- kind of an average case. 
not or a, a specific type of crime is where it is. Well, she does. She becomes a champion for women and children, mm-hmm. particularly, and she's there for about a decade. In 2015, the DA Kathleen Rice becomes a congresswoman, mm-hmm. and so she's appointed the acting district attorney for Nassau County. Mm-hmm. Cool. And like you said, she's like prosecuting sex crimes, domestic violence, child abuse, public corruption. And then all of a sudden she is the woman, like she is the DA. And in 2015, also this super high profile case in Nassau County comes back into the conversation. Tell me what it is. Have you heard of the documentary Capturing the Freedmen's? Yes. Capturing the Freedmen's. Capturing the Freemans was like a small phenomenon when it first came out. It came out like 20 years ago. It was on HBO. 2003. Yeah. And I remember, the reason that I remember it clearly is because there was like a two-year span in my house where my mom was like really into HBO. (laughs) We were watching all the HBO things, and I at the time was too young to kind of watch that, or at least all of it. I do remember it being there and being on. Capturing the Freemans is a documentary about a family who... It's, so I, this is a, not necessarily that relevant, but Andrew Jarecki, who directed it. Yeah. Um, well, he becomes super invested in the case. He becomes super invested in the case, but he's also kind of now like, he's someone that you look to, like if someone makes a documentary or if he makes a documentary, you're like, this is going to be good. Or if he's co-signing a documentary, it's like, that's a big deal. He's oh, wow. very well known amongst like documentary filmmaking. I didn't realize that. Yeah. He's, he's a big deal. Um, but yes, he himself does become very invested in the case, but the case itself is that there is a family who offers computer science like classes in their home, and this is the 80s, right? Early yeah, 80s? yeah 87, like, I think. 1980, yeah, the later 80s, and eventually they are accused, the father and the youngest son are accused of basically like perpetuating sexual abuse towards yeah. the students who are entering their home. The allegations are brutal. Yeah, right? not cool. I don't know if you could just describe, so this is their arrest, but describe the father and son. I don't mean to laugh. I just, no, it's such like a picture is, of the time. It is exactly, that's what it is. Um, so it's interesting because the father almost looks like not that phased by what's happening to him. In his body language, he's kind of, like looking outwards but he doesn't look like that upset whereas like his son who is standing next to him part of his body language is the fact that he's sort of like being like corralled by a police officer but you can see he's like looking down and he looks more like a person who's getting arrested for a really serious crime he also has a mustache and a giant a mullet. Head of hair yeah. yeah it almost i think it is a mullet right so it, it is that's why it is, it is so of the time even the way that that i think uh, the way that the photograph is colored is makes it look so old. Yeah. I would say the father almost <laughs> looks like Archie Bunker. Yes, he like really Archie does. Bunker vibes. One thing that I'll say, I, I don't know a lot about All in the Family, right? But he's kind of angry. Yes, that is definitely. <laughs> yep. I, I've watched a lot of clips from the documentary in preparation for this conversation, and he does look confident because he. Yep. 
he thinks this is so ridiculous. Right. He doesn't There's look like he's bothered. No way by they're him. gonna the charge. The son looks concerned. The son's a little nervous. And yeah. so he's put all his faith in his father. His father's like, son, there's no way we're gonna get charged for this. Those charges are ridiculous. And we'll kind of talk about why yeah. the charges seem like that. But they are they're charged with brutal sexual yes. abuse in these computer classes that took place in their home. And so this is a case, like we were saying, that happened in the late 80s. How does Madeline Singus get involved? I'm glad you asked that. So it's 2015, right. remember, when she's appointed acting DA and this falls into her lap. Yep. This son, the man with the mustache and the giant mullet, is at that point requesting 17,000 pages from the case be released. And... <laughs> The case has become very famous, as you said, from the documentary Capturing the Freedmans, and that was nominated for an Academy Award. Like, yeah. it's not some small movie. Yeah. Like, you and know, it, it got a lot of publicity. And at this time, I believe, right, 2015, the father has died. Yes. The son is out of prison, which yeah. we'll kind of get to. Uh, so it's interesting right. that he's asking for this. Yeah. So he wants all of the information to be released, but for obvious reasons, Miss. Singus, District Attorney Singus, has her reservations. <laughs> yes. So just to give some context to about the accusations, this took place, the computer classes, during the late 80s, the early 90s, when there were a lot of cases around the country playing out where there were extreme, sometimes implausible allegations of mass sexual abuse of children and child care workers. And I want to just jump in really quickly and say that, like, the ones that sound somewhat implausible, yeah, those were situations, which we'll get to kind of in a minute, but if they sounded implausible, it was because they were bringing in, like, supernatural elements. So tell me, what is the satanic <laughs> panic? Um, the satanic panic was, it was, a, like, a cult, it had, like, a cultural sort of, what's the word I'm looking for, like, hold, it was, like, it had a hold over people for a while, and even, like, it's either it's kind of never went away yeah. in a sense like it simmered down but it's sort of on its, not on its way back i would go to um our friend sarah from you're wrong about for this information she yes. is our expert on the satanic panic essentially what happened was there was there were waves of accusations mostly against places that were offering services to children so for example the computer classes daycare centers and preschools were in the, like, line of fire of satanic panic. People just started to become overcome with this idea that their children not only were being abused, and in some cases it was the case that, like, there were... This isn't to say that there were not credible instances of, like, no, child abuse. No, absolutely, and I would just like to say yes. that. Like, <laughs> as a mandated reporter, if a kid ever yeah. tells me something or discloses something that is of concern, I believe the kid Absolutely. This was unique in that oftentimes there would be no shred of physical evidence and you'd have 30 parents coming forward saying, and it, it would be like contagious almost. Like, I think my kid has been abused. Yep. And the kids would say like, no, no, I wasn't. And none of the kids would have any recollection of it. And they'd say like, you were hypnotized. Yes. Or, and that's where the supernatural element came in. Yeah. Like, are there demons involved? Is, are there witches <laughs> involved? And that's where it became, that's why we call it the satanic panic because a lot of what came out of it was that people were then accusing, accusing folks not only of like sexual abuse or sexual assault, but it went beyond that to like they were they were conducting rituals at their daycare things like that. Right. Some of them, like I said, were 
corroborated or true, and then some we are in a middle ground where we don't know because what then ended up happening is that a lot of the children who were asked to provide evidence were given leading questions or they were coerced into answering or they were shown something and were like, sure, like I am four years old. You know, that's what makes this case so compelling is that all of these statements and accusations are made after repeated hours long visits from detectives who purportedly would not leave until they heard exactly what they wanted. And I mean, like that's obviously a biased statement, but None of the children had previously complained to anyone of any abuse. No, nope. there was no physical evidence. Right, and as we know, like, children can be abused and not say anything. Most definitely. But when we have an entire group who haven't, you start to wonder what's going on. Yeah. To give you an overview yes. of the case, <laughs> these accusations come in, and like, of what we know now, nothing happened. Enough so that the the son is exonerated, Right. And he's let out of prison after 13 well, years. Well, I was going to say, he's, he is released from prison, but true, he does true. go to prison. But we'll get to why kind of they ended up going to prison in the first place. Yeah, and it, I don't know if exonerated is even the right word because he still is registered as a sex offender when he gets out. And I think when he got out of prison, it was like he had completed his sentence. He had fully admitted to it as well. One important thing I should say is like this case was not created out of thin air or something, you know, where we don't believe a lot of elements of it, Mm -hmm. but there was a grain of truth in that the father had ordered a magazine from Europe, but it was, it depicted child pornography. And so that was how it became a case. And then they interviewed the detective. He gets to the house and he's like, what? You've been teaching children in here and you have these magazines? This could be a problem. Right. And I think it, I think that's a great point is that there's almost like two parts to it almost where there's like the father, Arthur, did yeah. I invent his name? Artie. Yes. Yeah. Because for a while, this is like a weird aside, but he works in a mambo band. And so he goes by Artie instead of Arthur because he, he wants is, to be cool. He doesn't want to be Arthur Friedman. He wants to sound like right. the leader of a mambo band in the Catskills. In the Catskills. So, right. There's kind of two parts where it's like the father who like has that allegation and then more things will kind of emerge about him the youngest which I always which I think is interesting anyways just the fact that it's the youngest son Mm -hmm. because learning that I was like that doesn't seem like it makes sense right what do you think I don't like what do you think would be the oldest son so there's two kind of distinct parts of this which is like the father is being accused the son is also being accused of the same crimes but like we were like we Sarah kind of mentioned, the father does have there are elements of his side of it that are quite unsavory. <laughs> yeah, no, no. The father definitely mm-hmm. he was a pedophile and yep. so his son gets lost in the crossfire. Yep. Admits to doing things that he now, as an adult man, says he didn't do. And that that's where they both ended up going to prison. They both Pled guilty to avoid a jury trial. Yeah, that was it. And so he didn't, he said, it it makes more sense for me to serve a little bit of time than to be at the whim of a jury. And I just know I'm not a sympathetic figure. So he does one more thing that I thought was crazy, but like he's trying to become a sympathetic figure. So he goes on the Geraldo show. 
The Sun. We're talking the about The Sun. Right? Yes. Does. Are you able to find the clip? I tried. I haven't been able to find um, the clip. I don't think. I'm wondering. So, if do you guys do you guys remember Geraldo Rivera? Geraldo was the news guy. He was the guy who went to open up Al Capone's vault. Basically, because I think that there are people who like either don't know Geraldo or forgot about him because he kind of disappeared fast. But the Geraldo Rivera show at the time that it was airing, he covered, it was almost like Larry King Live, where he would like go places sometimes. He would talk to anyone who was in like big, big news. It was like a prime time talk show. So as Sarah mentioned, what she asked about, there is a clip of the son. What's his, is it Scott? Jesse. Oh, he's Jesse. Is there a Scott? See, now I'm like. I know there's a David who's a clown. There's a lot. This family Um, is wild, but. Just watch the documentary. Jesse Friedman, who is the the son who is accused, goes on Geraldo and says that he did it. Right? Doesn't he confess? Yeah. Essentially, you cannot find the clip anywhere. I am wondering if that's just like you can't really find a lot of clips of the yeah. Geraldo. The reason I say his name like that also is because that's how he talks, and that's what they used to do on Saturday Night Live. They'd be like Geraldo Rivera. Aww. It's me, Geraldo. In case anyone's like, why did Molly sound like an insane person when she said that? But. You cannot find the clip. It is impossible to he find. Also, during this interview, talks about how his father had molested him. Um, so he's he later says, like now he says he did all of that, these false admissions and this like disclosure of molestation because he was trying to become more sympathetic. The whole thing is really strange. But then again, I don't know what I would do if I was falsely accused of a crime mm-hmm. and put on a national stage like this. And one thing that's really interesting about Andrew Jarecki, the director of Capturing the Freedmen's, the documentary about all of this that came out in 2003, is that we mentioned that he got really kind of immersed in the case and became involved in it. One thing that's really interesting is that he did a bunch of test screenings for it and came away from those test screenings noticing that audiences felt a lot of ambiguity about it. Mm-hmm. So he since then, Andrew Jarecki, has he's since gone to bat for Jesse Friedman and been like, I really don't think this guy did it. But because he saw that the, the audiences felt the ambiguity, he kept it there. Um, and he purposely tried to make the film. He wanted you to just try and come to your own conclusions. Like the lady or the tiger. Yes. Oh my gosh, I <laughs> forgot about that. So many classic English stories. teacher. Yeah. <clears throat> but right, he he noted he noticed that and was like, oh okay, like I want to keep going with this. That's yeah. gonna make my film more interesting. And your interpretation is sort of like an indication of your morality too, sure. right? Where I'm like, well, do I believe him? What does that say about me? I think that's something that filmmakers um, think about a lot. But I think documentary filmmakers and they're built different. They really are. People people make documentaries. <laughs> But I think that that's what they like. That's what they like live for, right? Is that you're of the movie with Doubt? Oh my God! Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, Judge Singus. Yes, it's her <laughs> job now. She's. It's 2015. She's just been brought on as the acting DA, mm-hmm. and this man is very publicly, like in the New York Times, in an op-ed, requesting that they release these 17,000 pages of documents, which include a lot of personal information of the kids who at age six or whatever gave statements and are now like fully grown adults who thought they put this behind them 30 years ago. Judge Singus has to decide at the time, DA Singus, Mm -hmm. am I going to put all of these people who have already suffered through this trauma 
back in the limelight. Right. Which, of course, like, their names would be redacted yes, anyways because of, like, for legal reasons. It's such a small community yep. that she thinks, like, well, people will still be able to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, I'm certain that there are folks who are like, oh, did you know that that was one of the kids, right? Like, yeah. unless they leave. And so very publicly, Singus gets this reputation that she always believes alleged victims are truthful. Friedman's lawyer, Ronald Kuby, comes out and he's like, you believe you're on the side of the angels. And I kind of feel like she could be like, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't? Yeah. Uh, yes. But she responds negatively with her own New York Times op-ed. And she comes out and she says, my office appealed the court's disclosure order. We did this to avoid re-traumatizing the victims who reported graphic details of their sexual abuses and had every right to believe the matter was put behind them. When Mr. Friedman pleaded guilty, pleaded? I think that, oh man. Sorry, I thought this is a classic, like, the office Michael Scott thing. Pleaded, pleaded. When the office, yeah, pleaded, pled. When Mr. Friedman pleaded guilty and again voluntarily proclaimed his guilt on a nationally televised talk show. So she will not release the documents. Right, and she's using that statement that he made. Not, I wouldn't say against him, but like, to just be like, put it to bed. She's like, man, you went on TV and said you were guilty. What do you want me to do? Yeah. And I just want to say, um, not necessarily about the son, Jesse, but one thing I found really interesting about when it first started is that the two older sons believed their father and his wife, the mother of the children was like, I'm not so sure about this. I think you should investigate my husband, which I find sleeping in a separate bedroom. Yeah, she, and now she lives in, like, the Berkshires in some cabin she calls the Peace Cabin. And so I, and then, so I, I have to wonder, too, like, bringing it back to Jesse, who we're talking about in this case, just, like, where does he fit in here? And and it's, it's hard to say, because I think that, like, from the, from her perspective as, at this time, the district attorney. Yeah. Right? She's making it, she's, like, drawing a clear line, which I think makes sense for her Politically. Yes. But also, I think, like, just as to draw that line, just to be, like, to be very clear, right? Mm -hmm. Even if, like we were saying, this case is very muddled, it's super ambiguous in the the area of Jesse Friedman. And she's forced to do this throughout her career. It made me, like, Mm -hmm. really kind of respect what a terrible position you are sometimes put in where, like, you have to let the law dictate your decisions or at least even however it's not you, personally what you perceive right or at least however you like interpret the law and right? this will happen to her again in 2016 she is the district attorney she becomes the actual district attorney not the acting district attorney january 2016 she takes office there's like a little controversy that cuomo could have appointed someone else but his dad had died that same time period and he wasn't like super involved or something but I also just want to remind everyone that January of 2016 yeah. was the start of, like, <laughs> an absolutely insane chain of events, right? Like, mm-hmm. okay, here we go. Like, buckle up, right? By 2018, this champion for women has been a, an actual DA for two years. She's doing the work. She's in the trenches. And then there are all of these allegations of sexual assault against the Attorney General of New York, Eric Schneiderman. Oh, I forgot about that. All right, so in 2018. May, May of 2018, it's like prime Harvey Weinstein. Me too. 
Yeah, Harvey Weinstein. Too. It's the like so basically like the Rowan Farrow Harvey Weinstein article has come out. Everything is rolling. Yeah. It's hashtag me too all over the place. And so New York Governor Andrew Cuomo appoints Singus, our Worcester girl, as the special prosecutor to investigate the allegations against Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. Molly, what is an attorney general at the state level, at the the national level? The attorney general is the person. So, like, every single state in the United States elects an attorney general. Um, And it's similar to the DA in the sense that, like, like I was saying before, like, for the area that you cover, you decide what to prosecute, that type of thing. Um, An attorney general does a little bit more than that, right? So, like, if there is a case that the state does need to either prosecute or, like, if the state is representing itself, Mm -hmm. um, that is in the purview of the attorney general, they will... I think that, like, one of the important things that an attorney general does is, like, staff, staffing, right? Because, obviously, the attorney general isn't singularly arguing cases all the time. Sometimes they are. Um, For example, when our governor, Mara Healy, was the attorney general, she was, like, not... Not routinely. <laughs> she was sometimes in D.C. arguing um, for specific, for example, for specific cases about reproductive justice, stuff like that. So the attorney general might sometimes travel to D.C. to argue a case for the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. But they also help to dictate what the state decide, what laws the state decides are important to, like, enforce. Or what laws the state decides are important to not enforce. Sometimes they're like, hey, guess what? This is an outdated law. We're not going to change it on the books. But we're not going to be prosecuting it. We're not going to be doing this. And that's something a DA can do as well. Um, but that's sort of like, it's kind of like a DA on a bigger scale. Okay. But with more relationship with like, for example, the governor. Well, that's interesting. Cause so it's Cuomo who appoints her and, you know, he's trying to be a champion for women as well. How is he, I know everyone well, so knows he's what appointing Andrew Cuomo her as a like. special prosecutor, right? Yes. But that makes sense. So a special prosecutor's job, right, is to come in when the attorney general or, dist- or whatever whoever the person is that's supposed to be handling the case. Yeah. For some reason cannot due to some kind of conflict of interest. Okay. So Eric Schneiderman, for example, cannot handle his own case, right? Yeah. So a special prosecutor is brought in in those situations where Andrew Cuomo is like Maybe we should not have this guy investigate himself. So how would you describe Andrew Cuomo? Oh my god, he's a ghoul. <laughs> I think now Who would play him in a movie? Oh, that's a really good question. Who's the guy from Sideways, the wine movie? That's what I was gonna Paul Giamatti. Yeah! I, you know what though? I honestly kind of think that the other guy from Sideways, Thomas Hayden Church, fits almost better. Because Paul Giamatti is too much of a good guy. Not that Thomas Hayden Church isn't either, but... All right, so, I, well, that leads to our next question. What brought Cuomo from national hero <laughs> to disgrace Governor oh Moore recently? Um, I just want to say, quickly before I move on, this is not to say that they look alike at all, but if Robert De Niro was younger, he would be <laughs> able to capture... And I'm not... I mean, it's the Italian thing, too, but I think that he would... he. There's a way that Andrew Cuomo acts mm-hmm. that is forceful and it's very specific that I think like an actor like Robert De Niro, even without the looks, would convey. It explains why he was a national hero yes. during COVID, right? We all well, trusted him at a time yeah. when we didn't have anyone to turn to. Right. And part of the reason he was a national hero is because he, because of Nepo Baby. His father was an actual national hero. His father, Mario Cuomo, was the governor of New York for three terms. I think 1983 to 1994. 
Before that, he was just in New York politics. He was the standard bearer for the presidency for a while, though. So there was two in 1988 and 1982. Mario Cuomo was like essentially like begged to run for president. And he didn't want to. He had no interest in doing that. And part oh, of so it, he was begged to. Like, yeah, other people. Were he didn't him. want to run for president, but he was the guy that that was like the baseline of the. That we were like, we want him. Are you as good as him? Yeah. The Democratic Party for a long time. This is a family. This is a Democratic scions. So his father was was beloved, not just in New York. He was very very forceful during like the Reagan era. As he was just someone who like was a Democrat and believed very much in, like, being clear about what that meant for his values. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Mario Cuomo was really, really, truly beloved. And so Andrew Cuomo comes in, and everyone's like, great, cool. Maybe he's just like his dad. Time goes by, a bunch of things start to happen. Earlier earlier in his run as the governor, he's, like, already kind of accused of, like, low-level and some high-level corruption. And that sort of starts to follow him as time goes on. It's just, like corruption issues, mm-hmm. um, appointing certain people to different things. Eventually, 2020 comes around. And he positions himself to be, like, the guy who's up against Donald Trump, essentially, mm-hmm. which also becomes, like, a very clear, like, do you want to be the president? Right? Like, I think... But he positions himself as being really forceful. He does these, like, really informative press conferences where they do, like, he puts graphics on the screen where he's like, do this, don't do this. I would watch them. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, people, daily. like, outside of New York, people were like, Andrew Cuomo. Eventually, down the line in that situation, a bunch of things start to come out about how he might have, like, hoarded tests for his own family. And he might have, like, been fudging numbers about how many people died or didn't die of COVID or from COVID or with COVID in certain situations. So that all starts to trickle out. Eventually he is accused of sexual harassment in the workplace. Of at least 11 women. By So yeah, one woman comes out and is like, this guy said and did all these things to me. Within like a week or two, a second woman. Now, yes, by now it's 11 women who yeah. are like, this dude is... Rotten. <laughs> and it mirrors, in some ways, Schneiderman's hoodie. downfall, almost. Narcissism. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's a lot of what it Hypocrisy. is for him, right? Schneiderman, likewise, was also, like, um, this champion of women during the Me Too yep. era. And he's trying to bring Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Oh, right, oh, he's kind of, he's the... He's the um, attorney general for the state of New York at the time where his cases are mostly being brought up in either New York or California. So to bring us back to 2018, Cuomo appoints her for the first time to a a very special position. Madeline Singus becomes the special prosecutor. I also just want to add that sometimes a special prosecutor doesn't necessarily prosecute. Sometimes they're brought in like they're as special counsel um, to just like to investigate whether they are going to prosecute. So that's part of it also is like you can decide to or not. Right. And she's coming up against New York State's highest ranking law enforcement officer. He's 63 years old. How would you describe him? (laughs) He looks, he looks like a guy that honestly, if you were like, this dude's doing a press conference, I would trust him. <laughs> Truly, right? Like, I don't know. He there's something about just like he doesn't give off bad vibes. This is this is um, former Attorney General Eric Snyderman. He's he's kind of regular, but he does 
there's something about him where I'm like, yeah, I would trust that guy. He's got, he's almost, because I, 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 he's almost like a little handsome, right? I think that's why. Yeah, like an older gentleman. Yeah, and I think that sometimes we are, get tricked by things like that. Oh, well, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> so there are at least four women who come forward mm-hmm. to the New Yorker. Yep. Or I'm sure after a lot of prodding from the New Yorker to finally tell their stories. Yes. He's had romantic relationships or encounters, and they all accuse Schneiderman of having subjected them to non-consensual physical violence. Now, most of it, they say, was, like, during role play. Yep. So he was, you know, uh, uh, what, and I put like this question to you hypothetically, but, like, what are the best practices? What are you supposed to do? So, as I, as a person who is not necessarily involved in... <laughs> That type of stuff, but who is interested in like sex positivity and resources for people. As far as I know, this is, I actually had a friend in Boston who used to throw parties Mm -hmm. where like groups of people would get together. And what I learned from them is that the absolute 100% like best way to go about it is to be very, very clear before anything happens what the situation is like what are our boundaries? When are we stopping and why? What is, how do we, how do we stop? If someone is like, and like, it doesn't safe words, but like, I something like a safe word. Portlandia skit where they're like, cacao, cacao. cacao. Yes, but as far as I have gathered, um, it seems like having really, really clear and straightforward communication mm-hmm. is the way to do it. And I also think that the, that, doing that is how you gain trust with someone, right? And so I think if it tur- if it takes a turn into a situation where you're no longer comfortable, you lose that trust, right? That element of trust. And then it can unravel from there. I would say this is going to sound like really silly, but there are, co- there are any number of internet communities about that, like, talk to and communicate with one another about how to, how to be a part of relationships like that. Um, so like, so like go to Reddit and like, (laughs) like, honestly, it sounds really silly, but there are places like where you can find like how to proceed if you are interested in that. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that it really, but as far as I know, like I said, it really comes down to just like, what are the boundaries? Yeah. What are we stopping at? So the protocol is like talk about it first. I think so. I yeah, think that like that's sense. right. Which like right, especially because, if you're role playing. Because if you get into a situation where someone starts saying no, 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 and that's what you wanted to hear yeah. as a part of the role play, right? And if it, if you are right, if you are a, if for like just like a dominant submissive is the easiest example to think of, right? You might then just be like, okay, that's part of this. Yeah. If you are continuing on. I think there has to be a point, though, where there's a check-in. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. So he went after women in particular who were very powerful, strong, boss ladies, <laughs> to use a, a term of that Girl time. bosses. They were girl bosses. And many of them, like, outspoken feminists. Like, one of them in particular, her name is Tanya uh, Sil... I'm so bad. I'm sorry. Silveratnam? Tanya... Selvaratnam. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the book she wrote is called The Big Lie, Motherhood, Feminism, and the Reality of the Biological Clock. Like, that's the woman you're going to go after? This guy sounds just so... 
out of right. his league. <laughs> it sounds like he was looking for women who would be interested in what he was interested in. Yeah, and they were reported that he said things like, uh, "Oh, I know what like I know what you say in the public, and I know what you really want in bed and stuff like that." He was looking for what does Ludacris say? Someone in the streets, freak in the sheets, <laughs> freak in the sheets, lady in the yeah. street, lady in the streets, and a freak in the sheets. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah, and I said yeah at the end, just like the song. Yeah. yeah. Even like as these women start to object, he obviously doesn't stop, which is a huge part of the issue. And then after the encounter is over, and perhaps he has shed his role playing, they're like, "Hey, like that was really messed up." And he goes, "I'm warning you." I'll have you followed, I'll have your phones tapped. Cool. And I'll threaten to kill you. Oh my god. There, this was two different women yeah. who he said the exact same thing to, yep. which is often how we corroborate these kinds of stories. If like two women are interviewed separately that don't even know each other yep. and they have really similar markers. This is very um this was reminding me and of And that's like, all allegedly you know. Yes. This is reminding me of the Army Hammer situation, too. Yeah. And a lot of the problem with the Army Hammer case was like, yes, I agree to this to a certain point. Yeah. It is when we went be, it is when he decided to go beyond that point that it became dangerous. It became a crime. So that's exactly where he goes to the like, listen, we're just kidding. Yep. And you can't, no, you says, can't regret it because you agreed to it or yeah. something like that. So he yep. puts out a statement and he's like, in the privacy of intimate relationships, I have engaged in role playing and other consensual sexual activity. I've not assaulted anyone. I've never engaged in non-consensual sex, which is a line I would not cross. Meanwhile, like, you know, he's been championing women. He's really yep. outspoken during me too. And our girl, I mean, I don't want to call her that. <laughs> Worcester's own. Worcester woman, Madeline Singus, is the one who has to decide, what do we do about this? Yeah. His victims go to the New Yorker, and they ask, like, how can you put a perpetrator in charge of the country's most important sexual assault case, referring to Harvey Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Weinstein! I don't know, I can't get it right! Well, because some people say, some people, if they have that in their name, they say Stein, and some I people know. say Steen, and either um, is okay, I think. <laughs> but the victims, they're calling him, like, Jekyll and Hyde. They said he's just, he's so different in public than he is at home in private. Yep. And they say, this is a man who has staked his entire career his personal narrative on being a champion for women publicly but he abuses them privately he needs to be called out three hours after that article comes out he resigns but still singh has got to make a call i believe that at the time that he resigned too he was asked to resign by both senators from the state of new york i would um, have Schumer, yeah charles schumer charles chuck schumer and um kirsten gillibrand mm-hmm. gillibrand both asked, both were like, I am calling for this man's resignation. Which is like, I would hate to be asked to resign from my job from just like the senators of my state. Like, no, really. You really did something wrong yeah. if you're, if they're calling for it. So it takes six months. Singus has to do exhaustive review and evaluation of all of the facts, all mm-hmm. of the interviews, the law, applicable statutes of limitations before she comes to her decision. Can you just explain, like, what is the purpose of a statute of limitations? Statutes of limitations are basically like a set number of years within a crime, or within, within the, or a set number of years after a crime has been committed that you can, like, go to police detectives lawyers and like do something about it right the purpose of them is to protect potential defendants from like 
if a crime happened 30 years ago and there's no evidence of it or there's little evidence or damaged it's it's essentially just like a it's like a it's like a fail safe like yeah. it's been so long we can't actually credibly do this it's it's really one of those difficult things because i like love reading articles about um people who are like overly litigious like who just like sue p- people for no reason and so i always think of that where i'm just like oh yeah it's protecting people from like a situation where someone is like you did this 30 years ago and it's like what because <laughs> sometimes that can happen right yeah one thing that's been really interesting and one thing that i think will kind of bring this back to is like for for example victims of special victims that we like we go go back to the special victims unit right like victims of like sexual harassment or sexual assault sexual abuse especially children survivors of those things do not tend to come forward right away right away or don't always for any number of reasons there's lots of reasons behind it and so there's an argument that statutes of limitations in specific cases need to be either changed reformed whatever it is because it's so common for for example a child who had a crime perpetuated against them to come forward as an adult and so it becomes kind of like i think for me personally it's almost like it like what's the crime should there be a statute of limitations for like sexual crimes Mm -hmm. because a lot of the times it's either hard to find evidence of those of those types of things in the first place or for example rape kits sit and sit and sit and sit and so sometimes the statute of limitations passes and it's like not actually the person's fault Mm -hmm. who is doing the accusing but that's the main idea behind them is just like is there if there's no evidence if there's right potentially fudged or damaged evidence how do we protect people from being like wrongly accused so this is very fraught. Singus' <laughs> decision. She says, I've concluded our investigation into the allegations of physical abuse allegedly committed by former New York State Attorney General Eric T. Schneiderman without criminal charges. But she does qualify that. She says she found the victim's accusations totally mm-hmm. credible while noting the statute of limitations allowed under state law would have prevented her from pursuing charges. And that comes back to what we talked about with her earlier, which yeah. was like making a decision based on her interpretation of the law, right? It's mm-hmm. the same reason that she wasn't releasing those 17,000 pages of the data from yeah. the Friedman case. She's holding to her like her own view of what the law actually means and saying like, I can't actually do this based on God this. That doesn't make it like, that doesn't make it like, Oh, you are free. You didn't not well, he is free, obviously, but like, it, it's not saying that it didn't happen, Yeah, but it does make it really difficult because then you're just like, okay, but it did. Yeah. <laughs> right. Not necessarily in this case, and obviously we're talking about these allegations. He's been probably allegations. disgraced. Yeah. yeah they're I allegations. That. But in general, yeah, it makes it really challenging to kind of move forward because it's like okay but that's a technicality right Mm -hmm. so it must be an impossible job but come may of 2021 andrew como gives her another appointment he announces that she'll be nominated to serve as the associate judge of the new york court of appeals the state's highest court um i had asked a lawyer friend in new york i was like uh what does that mean and she was like oh that's like 
the Supreme Court of the state. Yeah. That's like some really states, important. Yeah, some states call them like the state judicial court. I yeah. think that is a big deal. But so she leaves the DA's office, obviously, when she's appointed as a judge. And when she leaves, 65% of the management roles are now women. On the court, her big win in the last couple of years has been developing something called the Judges for Career Opportunities for Refugees program. And she assists Afghan refugees to resettle female judges in America. Oh, wow. Yeah. That just makes me think of like... You hear, I feel like stories of someone's like, yeah, I was a doctor. Yeah, now right? I'm here pumping your gas. Right. I mean, that's... Uh, but it is, but yeah. that... No, right. Like, obviously, this is just an example of that, an extreme example of that. But I think that that is something that, like, moving to the States, resettling in the United States for almost anyone is difficult. Even um, if you're cool. one of the most powerful, mm-hmm. respected people in your own country. Yeah. I think she still has family around here, too. I hope we didn't get anything wrong. (laughs) And if we do, please fact check us. We'll publish it. I believe they live in Holden. We'll double check stuff. But we won't hold that against you, Singus. Yeah, I just, I made a, I just made a face. (laughs) Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Holden. (laughs) (laughs) I work with so many people. I know, me too. I'm really excited to discuss the Coors Light twins next week. (laughs) I, me too. But I have to say, I really enjoyed this particular story just because I am not a lawyer obviously but I've (laughs) I've had like a vague interest in being a lawyer like I bought a book in college called so you want to go to law school (laughs) and I didn't and I do think it was the right choice for me but it obviously it does stem a little bit from watching law and order legally blonde (laughs) no law and order I just that doesn't make me want to become any of those things because everyone seems miserable a little bit at times yeah. on that show, but yeah, I watched Legally Blonde, and I was like, well, this is this is it for me. They all seem so tired, you're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, at any rate, I'm proud of Honorable Judge Singus. Yeah, I mean, it seems like she's trying to do good. It's It can be hard, and I think from certain perspectives, yeah. looking at a district attorney or an attorney general. Oh, she was just the DA. She worked... She's a special prosecutor, yeah. But yeah. like, even looking at a DA, depending on how they work, it can be really difficult for some people to see them as not like an arm of cops. Yeah, so and it depends on the DA because right because sometimes sometimes district attorneys do act as just like I listen, I take everything they say at face yeah. value. I'm going to prosecute a case of like a guy who had two joints on him, mm-hmm. right? And so it can be really hard, and it. There are DAs. Oh God, Rachel Rollins is no longer a good example. I was just, she was the one in Boston who then was like, she just got taken out. But there are DAs. <clears throat> there are DAs who who do try to take the work that they do and not make themselves just an extension of that, and try to find the crimes that matter and try to find the victims that matter. Well, it's funny in researching her, I did find like a bunch of stupid blogs about her you know and uh, I mean not I shouldn't say stupid but they're like very opinionated and I tried to just draw from the New York Times the things that we know yeah like sources of record they said like she's very pro-incarceration and I was like oh and that's hard. like for me personally that's hard too but this is like this is a story that we're we're talking yeah and and from Worcester's that was the thing where I was like all right these are the two big cases that fell in her lap right at the crux of her career and I think that's really interesting and I'm certain that is it is right like she just like kind of came up and they were like 
Boom, 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 boom. And I'm certain that if we talked more in depth, I, we we would find different nuanced other stories about it. Oh, yeah. But, but I do like, like the 30,000 foot view. You know, she is so proud of the fact that she's resettling these Afghani women yeah. who are judges. And yeah. she is really passionate about protecting women and children. And I just hope that she's not putting women in prison who don't need to be in prison. Yeah. I, I, that's my that's my little so topper. In conclusion, <laughs> honorable <laughs> judge Madeline Singus, come on, pop it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She'd probably be happy to have these conversations. And we'll go to Holden. Uh, okay, someone stop me. Goodbye. I, I will go to Holden as long as I don't have to drive there. I just don't like driving in Holden because I feel like I can only drive 15 miles per hour at all times. Honorable tell. judge Madeline Singus, please pick us up. <laughs> Drive us to Holden. Send we a car. would love to talk to you. And then we would love to talk to you. No, I would actually love to talk I to was you. actually, as we were recording, I was like, we should maybe reach out. All right. Uh, well, cheers. Bye. Cheers. Oh, I've been Sarah. I've been Molly. And this is Pop It. Cheers.